You've been awful kind to uh, us this week and just really appreciate you. I've been uh, studying this week and we've been presenting in the services John chapter 5. And I'd like you to turn there with me this evening if you would. And we've been looking at uh, the story uh, which uh, is presented in chapter 5, the second time Jesus uh, arrives in Jerusalem and he's, he's at this feast. And that's recorded for us, the events of that story in verses 1 through 15. And in that story, as we've been looking at, there are two groups that are presented there. It's very, very evident. And you begin to learn more about those groups throughout this chapter and, of course, throughout the rest of the book. But there are two groups that are presented here. One group is represented by the leadership of Israel, the Jews. Uh, and the other group is represented by Jesus. The group represented by the Jews is the religious group. The group re- represented by Jesus is the Christian group. And although they look very similar on the outside, they do the same sorts of things. They use the same kind of language. Uh, you know, all of those outward aspects, although they look very similar, uh, when it, you come down to the very core of who they are, they're very different. And, of course, uh, one of the signs of that is that the religious people in this passage are persecuting uh, Jesus. Of course, uh, they don't know His Father, as we've been, we've been discovering and finding. Uh, verses 1-15 through 15 talk about the details of the story and uh, all the uh, uh, aspects of what took place when Jesus was in the temple. And, of course, uh, by the time you come down into verse 16, uh, the leadership of Israel, these religious, this religious group, the, the Jews, are now persecuting uh, Jesus. And so from verses 16 down through verse 30, you have Jesus' defense and his testimony trying to explain to the leadership of Israel why it is what he, you know, why it is that he did what he did back in the first 15 verses. So he's trying to explain to them why he did what he did when he was in the temple. And then he not only gives his own testimony, but in verses 31 down through the end of the chapter, he gives several other testimonies which validate what he says. So he says, listen, I'm going, to come under, uh, I'm going to come under your game plan, under your rules, in line with Deuteronomy chapter 19, which says when someone is on trial for their life, uh, you know, there's a testimony of other witnesses are employed there. And so he calls on these other testimonies, and there are several there. And of course, we've been looking at uh, the last few nights, verses 37 down through verse 38, which is the Father's testimony, which is great material. And of course, Jesus has been testifying that everything that he has been saying, the Father has already said. So the Father has said everything that Jesus said, and he's testifying on Jesus' behalf. And of course, uh, this, is, uh, this is our topic, that what we want to look at this night. Uh, I really want to be careful, and I find myself constantly, and, and perhaps it's just because we've been studying this passage, and it's just... It's so in my face, you know, in these, these days of our study. Uh, it's so easy to slip into a religious mode of living. Now, I have a whole different lifestyle than you. Uh, I, don't, I don't have a job. <laughs> you do. I, uh, uh, I'm in revival every week. You have, what, one, two a year? Two a year? Um, so my, my area of temptation and, and the lifestyle that I live is going to look completely different than your lifestyle, probably, when it really comes down to it. And it's so easy for me at times to allow these kinds of settings to become run-of-the-mill, uh, to become not important, if that makes sense, uh, when in fact, 
there is such, and we've been finding it, and we didn't get a chance to go through it this week, but in this passage, uh, there's this time aspect that Jesus is always concerned with. And the religious people are not concerned with that. And the time aspect that I'm referring to is this idea that God is always moving, His plan is always unfolding, He's always working, and, and every moment is dynamic, and, and just the events that take place don't take place for a reason. And Corinne and I kind of experienced this, that she, she'll come up to me and say, listen, I got this CD, it's from a good pastor that I like to listen to, and I know who they are, and, and we listen to it. And what God has been dealing with her about is what God has been dealing with me about. And, and it's, it's, it's showing up in our marriage and in our relationship and, and how we focus in the ministry and all these kinds of things. And you understand, it's, it's her circumstances and how God was dealing with her and my circumstances and how God was dealing with me are different, but it's the same deal, if that makes sense. And so it makes me look at the events of my life altogether different. And just maybe, could it be possible that even the ordinary mundane events of our life are not ordinary mundane events? That he's orchestrating, he's leading, he's guiding, and he's directing, and he's involved in those kinds of things. And I'll just be quite honest with you, when you get caught up into the religious, and what I mean by religious is I'm using the language of this text, uh, the concept of this text probably is what I should say, is that we're talking about religious, we're talking about Anything that's done outside of the perspective of the kingdom, if that makes sense. It's treating something flippantly. It's, it's, it's seeing my job in any other light, uh, if I'm a factory worker, seeing my job in any other light than a minister for him. And you're not a factory worker, you're a missionary undercover. Wow. See, that's, that's the idea. That you're just not a school teacher, you're a missionary. And, and, and you're, I say, I'm, hey, I'm an evangelist and I live out of a fifth wheel, but see, my, take, my life has whole different other connotations and, and a whole different meaning. And I, I really do. I want to live that way. I want to live with that kingdom kind of mindset. That my identity is not even as an evangelist and not as a preacher. My identity is that I belong to Jesus and I am literally walking as his plan is unfolding before my life. That I'm the demonstration of what God is up to in my world. This is the testimony of Jesus. And of course, this, and he's listed these other testimonies here, verses 31 down to the end of the chapter, as to Father God saying the very same thing, which has been powerful. Now, we've been, as I said, we've been focusing in on these last couple nights uh, in verses 37 down through verse 38, which is the Father's testimony, which is really, really significant and it's powerful. And uh, of course, uh, I'll read that really quickly. I'm reading, out of the, uh, I'm reading out of the NIV translation, and we've covered some of this, so we want to look at it again this evening. John chapter 5, verses 37 through 38, reads like so. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one he sent. Father, we love you this evening. Would you accomplish all that you want to accomplish tonight? The role of the scripture and your word your word and all that you want to take place in us. How desperate are we to know you? How desperate are we to hear your voice, see your form? How desperate are we to be transformed in the likeness of who you are? Open our eyes, Father, to the truth of your word, and we'll give you all the praise. Father, we ask these things in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen.
We've been looking at this passage and we've divided it up and, and, uh, and really kind of broken it down and looked at it. But uh, there's a couple things that uh, God has allowed me to run into a guy, and actually I have his name this evening. His name is Ray Vanderlaan. Have you ever heard of him? Somehow related to James Dobson, not that that means anything. Uh, but that's kind of stuck out in my mind. But uh, this guy is really up on his knowledge. He's in Michigan. He lives in Michigan as by chance outside of Detroit. Teaches a, at, a, at a Christian teenage high school. So he's really kind of always expresses he's you know, in love with teens. So I just, you know, I warm up to him immediately. But uh, he's uh, fascinating. And he is so knowledgeable. He's really helped me in getting out of, which I'm always trying to, get out of my own perspective and get into the perspective of the Scriptures. Okay? Not look at it from my perspective, but look at it from the perspective of the Scriptures. Okay? In other words, when I come into this study, and I probably should say it like this, when I come into John chapter 5 and, and, and learning and reading and studying the events that are taking place here, I need to understand it as Jesus would have understood it. There's a couple of fundamentals when studying the Bible. Uh, one of them is asking a question, what do I uh, what do I see in the text? And what are the, some of the details of the text and studying that and looking at it and get, you know, getting into the text? What do I see that's there? The second question is taking what you've seen and ask what it means. Now, when you're asking what it means, it's not what it means to me, not what it means to my grandparents, not what it means to my denomination, but what the author meant for it to mean. Okay? Totally different. Okay, totally different. So when I'm studying, now stay with me on this, when I'm studying the scriptures, when we're getting into this passage, say I'm really wanting to get into the perspective of that culture and that day and understand it in the way that it was meant to be understood, if that makes sense to us. And so when we're coming in, we've been talking a lot about the scriptures, and I'm really wanting to come under and get into the understanding of what the scripture is. And, and this, these tapes that I've been listening to in this guy, the teachings of this fella is remarkable. He uh, did his Ph.D. work over in Jerusalem, and he did this. He tells a story about how he, uh, he goes in for his first day of classes over there, and um, he's, he, he's sitting in this classroom around these desks, and uh, uh, everybody's you know, dead silent. And he uh, is the only one in the room wearing khaki pants, um, a white shirt, and a black tie. And everybody else is dressed up in... Um, Jewish outfits. I don't know all the technical names for them, but you know, he look, they look very Jewish, like the, you know the Jewish with the you know their you know their outfits, what they're dressed in, and um, they're all set. They're all you know talking amongst themselves, and he's the only you know white American you know Western fella sitting in there, suit and tie, just poster boy for America. And in comes this rabbi, and he's carrying this bag with him. Okay. And he comes to the front of the class and he says, everybody's just dead silent. Okay? And again, this is the culture. Okay? This is the culture. And it's, he says it's just so remarkable because it's so similar. You understand? They're the same way they've been for years, hundreds of years. Okay? And everybody's just dead focused on this rabbi because he's a teacher and he's a rabbi. He's, Whoa, you know, big time. And this guy gets in this bag and he takes out this bag, uh, kind, of like a, a, kind of like a little uh, a smaller bag, but in it's got all these little... Uh, pieces of uh, uh, rice or paper of some sort, these little like uh, uh, plastic, not plastic, but uh, wax paper is what it is, wax paper. Okay, and he sets that down, and then he pulls out other, he's got this whole bag full of scrolls, 
Okay, and then he takes out another, uh, like a little uh, something, and it's it's a it's like a bottle, a squeeze bottle, but it's uh, kind of in its own little you know Jewish deal, and uh, sets this down. Then he goes from all the desks and he takes these scrolls and he sets one on every desk and opens it up right before uh, the student. And of course, the scroll is the Torah. And he said, what was interesting is, is he said every PhD student in that room had that thing memorized word for word verbatim. Okay? He said he couldn't even get the Ten Commandments straight, but they had the entire Torah memorized verbatim. And then the the professor goes back up, the rabbi goes back up, he takes these little wax squares, and he sets one on every desk. And when he sets one down, he has this, again, little squeezy deal, and he squeezes this, uh, this honey out on top of the wax paper. And he goes back up, and he says, take your finger, dip it into the honey, and taste it, and know that the word of God is good. And then he goes on to explain that before them, set before the people, is the very words of God. Okay? Really serious stuff. And then he said this, and I found this was absolutely profound. He said, if you're here to get an education... He says, if you're here to get a degree, if you're here to get, you know, a title uh, before your name, he goes, leave now. And don't bring the study of what we're doing here down on that kind of a level. And there is this perspective that you understand when you come to the scriptures, and I really believe perhaps we've lost a lot of this. But when you come to these, when you come to this book, you're not just coming to a book. Man, I believe that. See, You're not just coming to another opinion. You're not just coming to another thing that's sitting on a shelf. That You're coming to the very words of God, period. Okay, This is the idea. This is exactly what we're talking about. And when we're talking about it in that perspective, we're not just talking about it from the perspective of, you know, an illustration that Jeremiah Bullock gave in a service. See, this is the very perspective that Jesus himself has had. And you, of course, and we've talked about this, but you go back into Luke. Uh... Verses uh, chapter 24, the end of that chapter, and you have this Emmaus Road seed where Jesus is talking to uh, his disciples there and he's trying to explain to them the magnitude of what's taking place and, and, and it was absolutely concrete that it had to take place. And the words he uses here are very strong. Verse 44, he says, He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled. Has to be. It was, it was without exception. This is going to take place. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their mind and gave them insight into the scriptures and says, listen man, this, is, this had to take place. And so the perspective, not only from this culture, but from Jesus himself, was that the scripture was absolutely primary. And you go into John chapter 19, and you look at Jesus as he's dying on the cross, and he's, and he's sitting there in verse 28, chapter 19, it says, later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. He didn't say I'm thirsty because, well, well, I'd just love to have something to drink right now. That wasn't the idea. See, the reason he said that is because the scriptures had to be fulfilled. I'm convinced that Jesus wasn't thirsty. I'm convinced that he's hanging there on the cross going, oh, your plan is coming to completion. And then he says, oh, I forgot that obscure verse. My goodness, I almost forgot i got to be thirsty. <laughs> and so the scriptures would be fulfilled. He said, I am thirsty. And of course, they grabbed this sponge, soaked that thing, and lifted it up to him, and he takes a drink. And then, then he says, it is finished. So Jesus could not even give up his life until the scriptures were fulfilled. 
So we're talking about, and if you see teenagers especially, if you could somehow get a hold of this, it's because I know our generation we live in is so opinionated and it's so, you know, your rights and your opinion matters. And See, your opinion only goes so far when you come to the Scriptures. See, you, and this is so aggressive. You know, I've talked to teens before, and I say, you have no opinion other than God's opinion. And I've had teens tell me, hey, you know, Jeremiah, I love what you talk about, but sometimes you act like, you know, I'm to have absolutely no say-so in my life whatsoever. And I look at him and go, I thought you weren't listening. Praise the Lord, you weren't. Because <laughs> that's exactly what I'm talking about. That you'd have no say-so in your life whatsoever. That God is to have all-consuming 100% say-so direction in your life. Wow. That's Christianity. Which is so, I mean, and again, that's Jesus. And that's, that, that's the perspective that he came to the scriptures with. See, it was not only that it was the very words of God and the culture said that, but Jesus himself placed himself under the authority of the scripture. So again, that's the context of what we're talking about. And then again, the last thing, that probably the cultural aspect we need to understand, and I've missed this some, so I need to tell you, and perhaps you, uh, you've already got this under control, but what is the purpose of this book? See, what's the purpose of the Word? Well, I've always understood, when, you, when we're talking about the Word, we're talking about the Word of God, we're talking about the Scripture, oftentimes we're talking about the Torah, which is, of course, the law. Okay. It's the Jewish, that's how they talk about it. It's the Torah. I've always understood that meaning law. Okay. Torah is translated law. But one of the things that I've been finding is that really when you're coming down to the law, and that is a part of the Torah, you're really only talking about 10% law, 10% of the Torah. That the vast majority, hear this, the vast majority of the Torah is not just laws and regulations and commandments and those kinds of things. The vast majority of the, of the law is all about molding. Okay? It's all about, uh, it's all about uh, uh, shaping. In fact, the, one of the little trans, literal translations of that deal, how you can talk about it, is in terms of direction. The law is given, the Torah is given in terms of direction for your life. Now, so when we're talking about, and I have to tell you this, because when we're talking about this passage, we're talking about the scriptures and the role of the word of God for the church, for the role of the word of God in the believer's life. In fact, the role of the word of God, period. We're talking around more than just, you know, uh, something that's in a book that I don't set a glass on, you know, in respect for the Bible. And, and you know, it's more than that kind of stuff. It's the very word of God that's the authority of my life. It was the authority of Christ's life. He placed himself under the authority of the scriptures. And, of course, it is the very direction of my life. Okay? Now, having said that, verses 37 through 38. We looked at already the very first aspect of the Father's testimony. First of all, it says, The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. And, of course, we looked at that. That's an emphatic statement that, uh, uh, in the original language, they don't have uh, punctuation. You know, they don't have an exclamation point. And uh, I told you about my wife and some of the notes she gives me. Um, but uh, when she wants to emphasize something, she gives an exclamation point. Well, they don't have exclamation points in the original language. They say something twice. And for instance, you know, God is holy, but he's not just holy. He's holy, holy. He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. I mean, he's really holy. So they add emphasis that way. So an emphatic statement would be something like we have here. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. So it's emphatic. It's real, I mean, factual. This is, I mean, really stressing the fact that Jesus is not the only one talking about this. Hey, God himself has talked about this. It's an emphatic statement. But not only that, it's in the past. 
So Jesus is saying that, listen, God has talked about this, and it's so reassuring, that God has talked about this before it ever took place. That God himself has been speaking about this. That God himself is really into this. Strong language is what he said. Before Jesus ever came about, before Jesus started preaching, the Father has already talked about this. And Jesus is living according to that plan. As a side note, I'm standing on that in my life. I have to believe that God is going before me, even to Brainerd, Minnesota, and that I'm just responding and living according to his plan. Just as what was taking place here in Battle Creek. I have to believe that. And of course, Jesus says that here. Uh, there are three aspects of this testimony that he lists here. Okay? So, in essence, there are three aspects to the Father's testimony. And here's the big deal, is that all three of these, the leadership of Israel misses. The first aspect is given in verse 37. He says... After saying, the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me, he says, you have never heard his voice. And again, the idea of hearing his voice is that God spoke through the mouth of the prophet in a very audible way, and they could have heard it. Not that they are going to be alive for 400 years. Not that, you know, the, you know, this voice is still coming from a prophet floating around in the air. But somehow, when you come into the scriptures, you hear his voice. You hear his voice when he's coming through the scriptures. And the reason they didn't hear his voice is because they didn't belong to God. The second aspect of the testimony is he says, you've never seen his form. And we looked at that last night, uh, which is powerful. That somehow, you know, and again, I want you to be as excited about this as I am, perhaps. But to have a book that is so alive. Uh, my brother tonight was telling me about uh, buying a book for one of his guys at work. I don't know if uh, he realizes uh, that he's literally stuck the voice of God in someone else's hand. I don't know if he realizes that he's literally, if you want to know what God looks like, he grabbed that book and stuck it in that guy's hand. Because when you get in this book, you not only hear his voice, you see his form. And you have a physical representation of what he looks like that comes screaming out of this thing. You come into the life of a man of the, uh, by the name of Hosea, and you look at his life, and God uses his life as a picture of what he looks like. I wonder, I wonder if he wants to do that through us. I wonder if he wants to do that through us. I wonder if he wants to take you in your environment, in your lifestyle, in your occupation, and just say, I want to paint a picture with your life. I wonder if that'd be okay. And furthermore, I wonder if I could live in the awareness of that. You know, it would probably, and we, we talked about this even recently, that I want, it would probably make me accept the hard circumstances in my life a little bit easier. Make them a little bit easier. To know that the, in fact, I wonder if the, one of the telltale signs of God painting uh, his, his form with my life would be the pressures that I feel in my life. That when I start feeling pressure, when, when things aren't going my way, and all this stuff's going on in my life, I wonder if I just stand there and go, whoa. <laughs> Am I looking like him? That he's tailoring my life to look like him to my world. Uh, and the sad thing is, is that's exactly what was going on in the life of Jesus in this passage. And Jesus looks at them, and later on, especially back when, by the time you get to John chapter 8, they say, who is your father? And Jesus says, you don't know me or my father. Because if you knew him, you wouldn't be able to miss me. Because I'm a spitting image of him. I <laughs> look just like him. In fact, everything that I'm doing, everything that I'm saying, and everything that's going on in my life is a, is, a, is a picture of who he is and what he's doing in my life. Wow. And you wouldn't be able to miss him if you knew him. 
by looking at me. Of course, I want that to be my life. Every year we have three interns and we do camps. In fact, we've done your camp several years. Uh, well, a couple years in a row, several years ago. And we have interns and uh, they do. They pick up stuff from you. You just have to pray that somehow when they see me, they see him. See, that's, man, that's so... Imagine that with your kids. Mm, probably could go on that about that forever. Now, tonight, though, we want to look at uh, the third aspect of this testimony, which I'm really excited about. The third aspect of this testimony, of course, he says, you've never heard his voice. You've never seen his form. The third aspect, he says, nor does his word dwell in you. Okay? I'll say it again. Nor does his word dwell in you. Now, there's a couple different aspects of this sentence we really need to look at and put into perspective. First of all, he talks about his word. And again, when we understand, and this is always somehow gets confusing, uh, especially in light of the philosophies and, and opinions of our day and all that kind of stuff, when we're talking about his word, and we're not talking about an abstract thought, we're not talking about something that's floating in the midst of the air and and we're not talking about that kind of stuff, you understand. All of this, in the, in the context of this passage, every bit of this comes back to the Scriptures. Okay? When, you, when Jesus is talking about His Word, when you do not have, his, He says, you, hey, you do not have His Word dwelling in you. He's talk, when He's talking about Word, He's talking about this book. He's talking about the Scriptures. Okay? This is not going on inside of you. Not talking about some abstract kind of deal, you understand. And I, I, I understand that God's bigger than a book. Hey, I understand that. That Jesus is bigger than a book. But we're talking about the Word of God. The reason we know who Jesus is is because of the Word of God, which is our book. Okay? Shake your heads. You with me? Okay? So when he's talking about, hey, nor, do, nor does his Word dwell in you, he's not talking about something abstract. He's talking about concretely this book. Then he says this, nor does his Word dwell in you. God kind of got a kick out of this. The idea of dwelling... Uh, you can take that to mean a couple of different things. I have dwellings. Okay? One of my dwellings is your backyard. The church. It's an alright dwelling. You know. Uh, don't think I'd like to stay there for the rest of my life. Not, no offense to you. Um, and that, that's one type of a dwelling. Okay? One type of a dwelling. That kind of a dwelling with that kind of an attitude is not the kind of dwelling of our passage. In fact, by and large, one of the things I've found is when you begin to look this word up throughout the New Testament, most of the time, the word that we translate dwell is not translated dwell. It's translated to have, or even to get a hold of, to grasp, that kind of idea. In fact, the word it's used is in this statement right here. It's used in the way, oh, and this is powerful, and this is, oh, I can't give you all of them, but there's a... There's a uh, uh, there is a kind of a, we have this sermon that we, we've talked about in the past. It's called Stalker Jesus because he's after you and you can't get away from him, okay? He's Stalker Jesus. He's like a stalker. You know, he's he, he's going to run after you. You can't get away from him. You can't shake him off. It's not, you know, it's, I mean, he is just plain flat. He's a stalker. I mean, it's, it's, he's after you. And we get that idea in Jude where at the very beginning of the book of Jude, the author talks about, well, he says it like this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept, 
by Jesus Christ. So the idea is that Jesus is after you. He's got his hands on you. And I believe with all my heart, you have to fight tooth and nail to get away from him. Okay? There's this idea that he is after you. He's pursuing you. He's active. It's not just this passive Jesus in the sky who died on a cross, went through all of that just to sit up there and say, well, if you want to come, you can, you can come. It's this active pursuing of God. And this word it's kind of is, it gives you that kind of an attitude with it because it's used for Jesus in the way he relates to us in the book of Revelation. Uh, it says this in the book of Revelation. Jesus, uh, or John in, in, this, in Revelation chapter 1 is describing who Jesus is. Um, he says this. Write, Jesus says this to John. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. And then he gives, he gives the... Uh, he gives the uh, example of it. And the picture there is that God has in his right hand, it's this grip, it's this holding on to, it's, it's this has. God has in his right hand. That's the word for dwell. Okay? And there's several of these, but the picture is, is not just kind of, it's just kind of hanging there. It's not like, no, get this with me. Okay? It's kind of important. It's not that Jesus just has his hand here and we're kind of dwelling in there. Jesus has it. Okay? He's gripped a hold of it. And he's keeping it. Okay? You just, you, no one can snatch it out of his hand. Okay? It's not like if the wind blows hard, you're going to fall out. <laughs> you ever get that? Okay. So it's not just kind of like hanging out there, just kind of you know, laying back on the hand, and, well, hey, you know, Jesus turned and turned too sharp, and I fell off the edge. That's not the idea. Jesus has in his right hand. It's a gripping. If you can't get away. It's, it's nothing's going to get out. You have to fight like a dog to get out of this kind of thing. That's the word. So when, when Jesus says here, nor does his word dwell in you, it's this idea that's a little bit stronger than just kind of residing. It's almost like a kept inside. It's a guarded. It's you have it. Okay? It's not like you're just kind of hanging around in there. I can't really find it. No, it's a prized possession. And again, that just mimics all the parables we heard Jesus talk about. Okay? But where we get the idea of dwelled is uh, when, you, when you go to the next word, nor does his word dwell in you. The idea of dwell there, what reason we translate it dwell, is because of that word in. Okay? There's two different words you can translate in uh, in, our, in our original language. Um, there's the word into which is the Greek word ace. Okay? Kind of looks like E. Kind of looks like E-I-S. Translated ace. And it's the word into. So it would be like the idea of dwelling into. It's, it's kind of like a movement on the going inward. Uh, or you have this word, which is not a movement into, but the emphasis is on the remaining. Okay? And it's the word E-N. That's how we would... That's how he would write it, E-N. It's the word ain. And it has this idea of something that they have that's inside of them. Okay? It's, a it's a remaining in. It's a dwelling in. It's got a hold of it. Okay? So you put that together in the passage, and what he's talking about that they do not have, he says, you do not have his word, which is, hey, it's not this abstract deal. It's this scripture. They do not have that guarded, kept, uh, uh, just, it's, 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 Grabbed a hold of, it's forcibly uh, 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 defended against kind of idea of the word. They do not have that dwelling inside of them. That's what they do not have. Okay? You with me? Now let me give you an example of this. This is in essence what he's saying. Again, talking about the word. And this is difficult to explain this. But when we're talking about the word, we're talking about the direction. We're talking about the very voice of God, the, the very form of who He is. It's the, 
it, it, it's, it's the Torah, which is more than just rules and regulations. It has to do with the direction and the guidance and the molding and the shaping. And they have not guarded that direction, guiding, molding, and shaping on the inside of them. Now, this type of indwelling of God's Word takes place before the inwelling of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to confuse you, but stay with me on this. This type of Word that dwells inside of you is something that takes place before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And a person who is religious, okay, does not have that. Okay? You can be religious and you can know the Word. Uh, you can be familiar with the Word. You can use the Word. Did you know you can even preach the Word and not have it dwell Okay? Not guard it, not, not, uh, not have it, not aggressively protect it. Okay? This guiding force of his voice and his form in your life. You can be in the Word, you can preach it, you can talk about it, you can know it, and not have it dwelling inside of you. Okay? Let me give you an example of this. I want you to turn back with me, just briefly if you would, to the book of Numbers. Okay, again, I was, uh, I was really intrigued by this because it made it difficult to talk about this because all of, all of what Jesus is talking about here is pre-infilling of the Holy Spirit stuff. Okay? This is powerful to think that all that Jesus is describing, see, they could have had before the Holy Spirit came to Pentecost. That's powerful. Okay? So this is not... See, this is, this is almost ordinary... You wouldn't call it Christian. It's ordinary follower of God type of stuff. That was even Old Testament idea. Which, see, I always thought, I don't know about you, but I always thought the Old Testament was about rules and regulations and law and external and not intimacy. But that's not at all the way he's talking about it. God intended for so much more. That even in the Old Testament, there was a level of intimacy. And there was an expectation of the relationship we're to have with God. Even in the Old Testament. And, and there's a guy in chapter 20, looking at, start with 23. No, <laughs> start at 22. There's a guy in chapter 22 who missed this. And he has a relationship with the word like the leadership of Israel do. Okay? It's really interesting. His name is Balaam. And he's a prophet. Okay? And what happens is, is uh, God is guiding the people of Israel, and it, it, uh, it's, uh, of course, you know, this is where, uh, it's through the book of Numbers, and God is leading them through these, these nations, and they're, they're of course, uh, taking over these nations, or taking the land that God is giving them. Okay? You with me on that? And Balak sees the Israelites camped outside his, uh, his province and his country, and he's scared to death. Okay? And so he gets these princes together, and he sends them over to a guy named Balaam. Now, Balaam is significant because he's a prophet of God. Okay? He's a prophet of God. Now, we've been describing all week what a prophet is. A prophet is one who comes and proclaims the voice of the Lord. So when, the, hey, when he opens his mouth, it's just as good as God. Thus saith the Lord type of stuff. And everyone knows that. Everyone's going to know a prophet. And if certainly Balaam was known. So Balak sends over to Balaam and says, A, hey, and this is the message he sends him, looking at uh, verse... The end of verse, uh, well, it would be verse 6. Okay? It says, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and had settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. 
Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country, for I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. So the elders of Moab and Midian, they go to talk to Balaam about this. And listen to what Balaam says in verse 8. It says, Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will bring you back the answer the Lord gives me. Okay, he's a prophet. He's going to go talk to God say, Hey, this is what they're up to. This is what they're saying. What do you want me to do? And he comes back. And uh, he, it says, uh, verse 10, Balak said to God, Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. Tells him the message. Verse 12, But God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. Okay, so Balaam comes back, tells these guys, Hey, listen, can't, can't curse them. Okay, not going to happen. Well, of course, uh, uh, Balak's people don't... Uh, uh, don't really uh, settle for that. and co- the, So they're keeping on begging him. And then you go into the passage where Balaam's donkey, and we all know about that. Balaam ends up going to speak with them. And God's really angry with Balaam. Okay? This is the story. We can't go too much in depth with it. But see, God's angry with Balaam because there's an issue with Balaam. There's a problem with Balaam. Okay? It pertains to our passage. It isn't made known here, but it begins to be made known a little bit later. Okay? You come down uh, through this passage. He arrives. And uh, look with me at verse 36. Chapter 22. It says, When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the uh, Moabite town of Arnon, border at the edge of the territory. Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send you an urgent summons? Why did you not come to me? I am really not able to reward you. Uh, Am I really not able to reward you? Well, I have come to you now, Balaam replied, but I can say, I I can, uh, but can I say just anything? I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. Oh, see, that's the prophet idea. He says, I'm a prophet, okay? It's not, hey, it's not my opinion. It's not what I want. Hey, and and you understand, Balak's going to reward him handsomely. He's going to reward him with riches. He could have given him town. I mean, just all this stuff. And you understand, this guy's kingdom's at stake. So the the reward's going to be big time here. And, and Balaam says, listen, I'm a prophet, man. I can only tell you what he puts in my mouth. That's the role of the prophet, the word of God. I can only tell you what he puts in my mouth. So Balaam is handling this word. See, this word we're talking about that comes out, it's, a, it's recorded for us in Scripture. This is the direction of God. This is what Balaam is handling. Okay? He says, I have no say so. I mean, he's, it's going through his lips. Okay? And Balaam gives three oracles. <laughs> it's, almost, it's almost funny to me. Balak says, listen, hey, put a curse on him, put a curse on him. And so he gives his first oracle, and you can read that some other time. It's listed in verse uh, uh, 7 down through verse uh, 10. And uh, Balaam goes to God and says, hey, he wants me to put a curse on the people. And God says, say this. So he comes back, and he, and he says what God tells him to say. And it's not a curse, but it's a blessing. And Balak's really excited about that. Verse 11 says, Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies, but you've done nothing but bless them. And he answered, Must I not speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Okay? I'm a prophet handling the word of God. So he gives a second oracle, verse 18 of chapter 23. Then he utters his oracle, It's nothing but a blessing. Verse 25, Balak said to Balaam, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. Balaam answered, Did I not tell you? Uh, I must do whatever the Lord says. Okay, so then there's the third oracle, and he blesses him again. And by the very end of this, uh, this last oracle, and there's a couple more actually, but chapter 24, verse uh, 14, and there's a whole section, actually, verses 10 through 14. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. 
he struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. And Balaam answered, Did I not tell the messages you sent me? Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I could do nothing of my own accord, good or bad, to go beyond the command of the Lord. And I must say only what the Lord says. Now, this, now this, is, this is where Balaam goes bad. Listen to what he says. Now, I'm going back to my people, but come, let me warn you of what this people will do to your people in the days to come. And he does give a couple more oracles but what you find out when you come down in the book of Revelation, and we don't have to, you don't have to turn there, but what you find out when you come in the book of Revelation is that Balaam, when he was, and it's, it's an amazing thing, that Balaam, even, even though, think about this, wouldn't this be absolutely wretched and horrible? Even though Balaam was the avenue by which the word came through him, he was rotten to the core, and when he was not speaking for God, he, was, he did not belong to God. Okay? In other words, he was the avenue by which the word went through him, but the word did not dwell. He didn't guide it. He didn't take and heed the direction. He didn't keep it. It didn't, it didn't remain in him. It didn't bear fruit inside of him. Okay? He was, he was the vessel. Okay? He spoke the word. He was the avenue of the word. All of those kinds of things, but it didn't dwell inside of him. It didn't have direction in his life. Okay? It, didn't, it didn't remain in the voice. You see, the form. See, he never got that. Why? It didn't dwell inside of him. In fact, listen to what happens in Revelation. This is to the church of Pergamum. Just listen to this. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak how to entice the Israelites to sin. So what you have is Balaam, who was the very voice of God, but on his own, outside of the Word, he taught the people, hey, this is how you're going to get to them. And Jesus is talking to a group of people in our passage who is exactly like Balaam. Hey, they know the Word. They've got it memorized. They've sat in the class. They've had the scroll rolled before them. They've had the wax paper there. They've put the honey on top. They've tasted and seen that it's good. They've memorized it verbatim. If you're a rabbi, you had it memorized. It's one of the prerequisites. They had it memorized verbatim, word for word, but it never dwelled in them. They'd never heard His voice. They'd never seen His form, nor did they guard it. They didn't guard that direction in their life, and they could have. And what you have is, throughout the Old Testament, for instance, you have this, there's a devotional in the book of Psalms. A psalm writer writes it. This is what he says. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart. That's the idea. And what you have going on in our passage, and again, by the time you get to John chapter 13, Jesus looks at the leadership of Israel and He says, you're going to die in your sin because you have no room for My Word. Uh, Don't be deceived. There's a difference between memorizing the entire book of the Bible Being the best on the quizzing team. Knowing this, being able to preach hot sermons. I mean, that's not what he's talking about. 
He's talking about letting this book get into your life to such an extent that you guard it, that you, you protect it. That man, there, hey, there's nothing that's going to take this thing away from you. It is the core guidance of your life. And it is producing the fruit of direction in your life. It's right, you hear His voice. You see His form. That's all pre-Holy Spirit stuff that they could have had. See, God never just wanted this jump-through-the-hoops type of religious people that are going to go through these meaningless traditions. It's never what He wanted. His Word is... And, and again, you have this all the way throughout the Scriptures in the book of James, chapter 1, where He says, Humbly accept the Word that's been planted in you, which can save you. Don't merely listen to the Word. Do what it says. That it's supposed to take root in your life. That is not just this... See, again, I get so frustrated with the idea of devotions and... Did you do your devotions this week? Yeah. Well, that's great. You know, I, I read through the book of Hebrews. Wow, that's wonderful. What does it say? Well, I don't know. But I read it. Well, <laughs> pull that off at high school. Did you study the chapter? Yeah, I read it. What does it say? I don't know. But I read it. You get an F. Jesus will flunk you too. Okay? Because it's not about the legalistic type of Hey, I read my Bible every day. It's the very idea that this Word of God that's been planted inside of me, that it doesn't just kind of hang out there. Yeah, I think I remember that verse. It's I guard it. Okay? It's the direction. It's the Torah. Not just law. It's direction. It's, it's molding. It's, it's guiding. It's, it's I'm guarding. It's a habit. It's in my hand. It's not going to get out of me. It's producing the fruit of who He is. Paul says, wouldn't it be horrible if I preached to save others and I myself was condemned? It's possible, man. Because we're, we're looking at Jesus as he talks to a religious group of people. And it, we didn't get to it this week, but he says in verse 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These things talk about me. I'm the epitome of what they want you to look like. And you haven't got it. Where are you at in your Bible study? And I even, I, I would like to invent new language. We call it saturation in cross-style ministries. And we, we have these buzzwords we use. And I guess you get them. Um, in terms of Bible study, we have saturation and then we have what we call dipping. Okay? Dipping is a five-minute thing that I do every morning. I dip myself in the scriptures and I go, ooh, wow. And then I go on my day. Saturation is just what it sounds like. It's an all-encompassing, immersing in God's Word where I realize that it's not about me studying that book, it's about it studying me. It's not about me wielding that book, it's about it getting in my life, dividing, dividing spirit, bone marrow, transforming, having its way, revealing, He's speaking, there's meaning. It's, it's no longer just. Father, we love you this evening. Two different type of people approach your scripture, approach your word. I wonder if they're in cross-style ministries. I wonder if they're pastors. And 
it's rightfully so. There's so much pressure. They have to work up two, three sermons a week. Father, don't let us get by. Perhaps the way we've always gotten by. We want Your Word dwelling inside of us. I mean, we want to hold on to it. The very truth that can save us. The same authority that was over Christ Jesus, that He placed Himself under in terms of God's plan. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the sweating drops of blood. It's, hey, it's not my will, but it's Your will. If falling in line with the plan of God. Jesus, I want to fall in line with Your plan for my life under the authority of the Scripture. I want to recognize it not just as a book, but as the very Word of God for my life. The direction that's living inside of me that I guard, that I hold. I just don't want to be the communicator. I just don't want to be the avenue. I just don't want to be the mouthpiece. I want that thing to take root in my life, that I might become the form, that I might become the demonstration, that I might become the event by which someone sees you alive inside of me because your Word is dwelling in me. And it's producing the fruit of who you are in my life. How we live in there this evening, Father. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to give you an opportunity to respond this evening. And I don't want to put false conviction on you. And it's easy to do that as an evangelist. And I, I don't want to do that to you. I do want to tell you that Where's our investment into the Word? We have investment into AOL. We have investment into cable. We have investment into the new stereo. We have investment in the new tires. Where's the investment into the tools of getting into His Word? I do. I put a certain amount of weight upon things in my life, in my marriage. Where's the weight that I put on His Scripture? Where's the weight that I put on His very voice in my life? I wonder if I could take it this far, that if we are not people of the Word, we will not be used by Him in the way that He has dreamed for us to be used. I take a stand in the name of Jesus against any other program, any other outreach, any other service style, any other mode of evangelism that is not center on fundamentally the Scripture. Because nothing can replace that. Nothing can replace that. No, nothing can replace that. Everything comes back to the authority of the Scripture and the spoken Word of God. Everything comes back to that. Are you living there? Father, we love you this evening.